In this bonus episode, we interview Dr. Courtney Renicky about resilience in the time of COVID-19. We recorded over Zoom and the sound quality is not our usual, but I hope you find the conversation useful. Okay, Courtney, thank you very much for making the time today to be on the podcast, our first uh, video podcast that will go on YouTube. Yeah. So, yeah, not quite sure how it's all going to work out. So, um, we're going to talk about COVID-19. Um, yeah. it, it, clearly, it's impacting everyone's lives uh, around the planet. Um, we're being bor- we've been bombarded with a media frenzy unlike anything we've ever experienced, yeah. whether it's the WhatsApp groups that we're all part of, the Zoom rooms that we're continually yeah. sort of drawn to. Yeah. Um, this media, media maelstrom is just unrelenting, and that's not even mentioning the White House briefings. Yes. But besides the, the pandemic itself, um, yeah. having already claimed a lot of lives, it's the impact of an, on, it, on another global pandemic, the mental health pandemic, yeah. that I think we're more concerned with. Yes. Um, and, and while I think the figures are something like over 260 million people are suffering from depression around the world, and I think the US is in this 50, 60 million level, I think the Lancet I read had already warned that the mental health effects of COVID-19 could exceed the physical impact that it's having. Right. So after all these weeks of isolation that we're all going through, some of us, you know, more isolated than others, um, the sales of comfort foods are up, the sales of alcohol are up, the use of cannabis is up. For all the things we're taking refuge in may have an impact uh, that may, that its impact may have to take some time to unravel. So we have to be thinking, I think we have to be thinking about our mental well-being, all of us, regardless of where you sit in that, in that spectrum yes. um, of health and to illness, about looking after ourselves. So we wanted to invite you on to talk about resilience and the steps we can take, um, given that you were one of our early guests and that you, are, you have your own practice. So maybe you could just start, and for people that haven't seen the original podcast, introduce yourself, sure. the work you're doing in New York. Um, and and how, how you're um, navigating this this um, crisis at the moment? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, virtu- virtually. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. So, um, as you're saying, Mark, um, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I have a group practice in the Tribeca neighborhood of New York called Frenicky and Associates, and aptly named. And we're a group um, that really kind of looks at therapy and looks at healing through a lens called the attachment theory or kind of are we attachment focus group and what that means maybe is going to be something that's really relevant to our conversation today because I think the lens that I really want to talk about resiliency through is through a relational community lens Um, and I certainly can talk more about about what that means. our practice really kind of got its start working a lot with adopted children and families. So that's also kind of um, a thread of my kind of story and maybe particularly relevant to today. One thing I just wanted to mention that I was realizing I was kind of getting a bit emotional about in anticipation of this conversation was that my, um, my doctoral work was actually on trauma and resiliency following 9-11 in high exposure folks that were in the World Trade wow. Center towers or right around it. And so kind of retracing my, like, how to think about resiliency really took me back almost 20 years now to those emotions of being, I think at the time I was a 23, 24 year old graduate student um, and what I was experiencing emotionally at the time and kind of what my intellectual journey um, was 
under the mentorship of my of uh, George Bonanno, who's still actually up at Columbia University, he'll be certainly mentioning again. So I just want to say kind of like that's maybe a bit of my framework in coming to this that I kind of my kind of entryway as an adult in the city was 9-11 and my entryway to thinking about trauma and resiliency and how the human beings cope with stress was kind of through that lens and is now kind of been shaped also by my work working with developmental trauma in adoptees and um, and also with adults as well and their and their families. So um, maybe that's just like a to, to begin with a little bit of kind of the yeah. that I want to bring to the conversation. Um, and I I guess like maybe as a place to start, I know you we were, we've kind of be talking about this in other chat rooms and Zoom rooms and just friend support groups that we've been participating together. And I think um, all of those statistics that you're naming are um, really daunting and really overwhelming. And I guess I want to bring at least some of the lens that we can kind of look at of not just what's happening right now, with mental health, but what does like kind of, what does epidemiology kind of tell us about what this is going to look like in two months from now and three months from now and a year from now? Um, and I think this is maybe we're coming back to my doctoral work at Columbia with George Bonanno. I owe him a huge debt of gratitude because when 9-11 happened, he thought very paradoxically from everybody else, which was he didn't think that we were going to see such massive spikes in the rates of mental mental illness diagnoses. It was going to be very, very clear that there was going to be much, 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 much higher rates among people who were in the World Trade Center and immediately surrounding the area that actually witnessed and experienced the event firsthand. Mm -hmm. But his whole thing was that our systems are kind of built for this. We don't think about it much. We don't think about... Um, we kind of think as these kind of, I mean, it's an absolutely unique event to our history as human beings on the planet in terms of our awareness of it and how we're experiencing it because we can actually know that this is happening globally. But um, concerns about illness and death and isolation and how our nervous systems and our emotional systems process this, I guess that the thing I always take from George Bonanno is that we were kind of built for this. And so sometimes what we see acutely is different than what we see over the long term. So maybe that's just kind of the first thing that I maybe want to kind of offer to okay. the conversation. So yeah. when you say we're built for, built for this, do you mean in terms of um, my simplistic explanation and way of understanding yeah. what you're saying? Is it the, the amygdala and our fight and flight reaction yeah. that's kicking in? And that's why some people are fighting and others are in flight and they're yeah. or trying to escape from it. Absolutely. So maybe, um, maybe it'd be kind of, I think, I know it's like, maybe it's helpful for me. I know it's kind of helpful in conversations I have with our clients to maybe get a little bit more of a baseline of like, what are we going to be talking about if we're talking mm -hmm. about, we're built for this, right? Yeah. So you were mentioning fight or flight, but I'd maybe want to extend kind of the spectrum of what we're thinking about. And so that there's um, a researcher named Stephen Porges who has this kind of theory called the polyvagal theory, which sounds like... Ugh, like a mouthful, right? Like, uh, please don't give me something to think about um, when I'm struggling and I'm trying to figure out what to do. But I, I, I think that he and his colleague, Deb Dana, have made, have tried to make this really approachable to understand how does our nervous system work and how did it evolve? 
at kind of the earliest phase, what we share as human beings with every other creature on this planet that's sentient is that um, we start with our nervous system with something called a freeze response, right? When we're in danger, when we're under stress, we have something kind of in our parasympathetic nervous system, which is the part of the nervous system that slows us down, that helps us to survive under stress by freezing. So if you think about deer in the headlights, right? Um, or animals that quote unquote play dead, like a possum plays dead. These are kind of located in the part of our kind of polyvagal nervous network of nervous system, um, nervous system um, in our dorsal kind of vagal response. What does that mean? How can we make any sense of that? I think if you're going to think about talking, thinking for yourself of the waves of experiences you've had after kind of the COVID-19 um, pandemic hit and then and then um, impacted all of us in terms of self-limiting at home, you can probably think of moments where we felt more despondent, low energy, maybe or maybe if not ourselves, have talked to friends who are really struggling to kind of get out of bed, find the resources to do what they normally would do. And so when we're thinking about that, we're thinking like that's somebody who's maybe getting stuck or is maybe spending more time in kind of the, this dorsal part of their nervous system. I think one of the things that Deb Dana likes to talk about is like give that for our conversation kind of to give that some kind of color or experience that kind of makes sense because dorsal vagal is like, it doesn't make sense. But to think about, um, you know, either a geographic place you've traveled to that's really dark or gloomy. Like I'm thinking of sometimes where I went to uh, college up in Ithaca, New York, those winters, the gloom and the ice storm. And I think sometimes my isolation moments of as a college student feels like that dorsal place with, that we all have within us. It's not unique to certain people. We all have it and we all travel in and out of it. So that's kind of the first block. So that's freeze. Then we get to kind of this other part which you're talking about in terms of fight or flight, which absolutely the amygdala is involved with it. And how we think the amygdala is involved with it is part of a whole network of how do we as human beings detect fear and stress? You do it out of conscious awareness, right? The term that Stephen Porges gives us as in part of thinking about when do different parts of this polyvagal system get activated is a term called neuroception. And what does neuroception do? It's like why we can start moving away from the snake on the path before we see it. That we have a system that's built for fight, for mobilization, not up in our prefrontal cortex where we can reflect and think, but just helps us to survive. So some kind of indications that your nervous system might be in more of a kind of sympathetic or mobilized moment is feeling that charge of panic. Folks that are saying, I can't sleep through the night. I'm waking up in the middle of the night. I'm having more panic. I'm having more fear. I'm having more terror. My body is literally feeling charged up. Also people I think who are feeling kind of the antsiness around I'm feeling cooped up and I feel like I can't get out. That's we're in as part of our system that again, everybody has, which is kind of the sympathetic system, which also is related to fight or flight, right? It's both the dorsal part of our system, the dorsal vagal and the sympathetic system. They're on all the time. The dorsal system's kind of like, you know, it's like our basic utilities. It keeps things functioning, right? 
under stress. It's just rushed it up. It's up at yeah, 99% at the moment. Exactly, oh. exactly. It might, it might be for some people. And our sympathetic system is like our alarm system in our house. It's on, like it's your, your, your alarm systems are on, they're installed, but they don't operate until we're under stress, right? Yeah. And the, the next part, which is kind of where I want to maybe make the conversation relational and maybe I want to kind of use it as part of the foundation to describe what does relational resiliency look like is this ventral vagal part of our system, which Stephen Porges calls like our friend part of the system, which is what we understand from attachment literature is that how our bodies get regulated well is from that early interaction between parents and infants, mothers helping babies to feel safe enough when you're in, if you're lucky to be in a, in a situation where there, was, where there was some safety, emotional safety to be had, because what it does is slows down the heart rate, slows down the respiration rate, and makes people feel safe to be engaged. If you think about the simple act of hugging, right, or being close to somebody, things that I think we're all really longing for, for those of us who are um, alone during this uh, pandemic, we're searching for that hug, but you have to feel safe with somebody to feel that kind of connection. And what that does to the system is it puts it in a state of open engagement where we can feel our sadness, our grief, our rage, our terror, um, can feel the feelings that are actually running through our system during this time. So we've got kind of freeze is our oldest part of the system we share with everybody. Fight or flight we share with all mammals. And this friend part also we share with kind of most sentient mammals. If you think of even like um, elephants or other kind of, you know, evolved mammals that like we shared these parts of um, gorillas. Yeah. Gorillas too. Right. You think about that bonding between why do um, elephant mothers or gorilla moms grieve when their baby or something happens to their babies. Right. It's that kind of closeness and connection and why those babies, how are they regulated? How do they feel close and connected and how are they able to thrive in the world? It's not just emotional safety, like warmth, but it's actually very physiological. Folks that can that we all travel up and down, like what John Balin calls through interstate travel, we all move up and down through our nervous system through these, these places. But it's really the quality of our early relationships and later on our friendships, our romantic relationships around us that help us stay in that friend place, that kind of open, engaged place where we can experience everything that we're feeling, right? Because we have to also, it doesn't evolutionarily make sense to really break down in a puddle when you're in fight and flight. It doesn't make evolutionary sense that if you're stuck in a freeze moment right now, if you're struggling to get out of bed, to be raging, right? Because it's just, it doesn't evolutionarily make sense. So you want to think about our nervous system spans and goes back and forth between these kind of, there's, there's more kind of states. There's also calm and play. There's a couple others, but just for the conversation today, I think those are the three main ones for us to think about. And I think that this kind of friend place, our kind of vagals, our ventral vagal state, that's really the one I'd like to kind of talk about in terms of when we're thinking about resiliency. And so, yeah. So is that why I mean, we interviewed a, um, Chloe Valderay, um, who has a, a consultancy called Theory of Enchantment. Yeah. And she made the observation that while we are spatially distant, uh, physically separated from people close to us, we're actually more socially connected than we've been probably before. 
and why maybe so many people are gravitating towards these Zoom-like experiences where they're coming together in this friend state that you're talking about. Is that a fair assessment? I think that the longing for it, I think this situation is going to activate all of our systems to seek out attachment figures. Uh who helps us to get into that place of felt sense of safety. I think probably in these different Zoom chats, and you could probably also experience it yourself, some work out really well where you can drop into (laughs) that open engagement and others don't. Some might actually up you into kind of fight or flight. Some might drag you into kind of that free state. But I think at, at best, really what she's saying is that we are always social creatures. That is always there. The pandemic, I think, reveals it, lays it bare for us, but we are always longing for connection. We we are wired for it. We operate best in social communities and connections. So I think it it lays it bare. That longing is always there, I feel. Yeah. So what you're, I mean, you've, on your website, you've put up a a lot of resources that people can tap into. Yeah. Um, And you're obviously maintaining your, your, your business with your um, team of therapists yeah. and the clients and patients you already have. Yeah. What advice can you share that might be useful for people who might be struggling in these different states that you're talking about? Sure. Just any practical advice, uh, steps people can take? Yeah. Well, maybe, um, maybe just maybe one more step before we get to kind of practical mm-hmm. advice is maybe, again, I would just say, I think I'm mentioning these because I think... Um, the advice really depends on who I'm speaking to, what nervous system I'm speaking to. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think this is why I was saying um, when I kind of started with this concept that really, again, my old doctoral advisor really drilled into me that we're, we're built for these stressful events. It's not that they don't impact us. They don't existentially change us, but we're built for them in the sense that our nervous systems are built for them and we are adaptable to what our environment is. I think what this is also bringing out is what are the disparities of experiences that people have had in their lives. If you're born into a family where there's a lot of chaos and violence, where your nervous system is going to be, how it adapts, and why it might be getting more stuck in freeze or fight or flight is adaptable to that set of circumstances, right? If you're born in a country where there was predominantly a lot of political chaos and violence, Also, I think that there's been people who've been saying, you know, I actually feel really fine and I'm actually really thriving. And I think that there's this sense of like, this feels kind of familiar to me. This is similar either to my family of origin or to the country I came from. Right. So I think I also want to get us out of the idea that like it's that um, our nervous systems adapt to kind of how we got wired, our genetics and the environment that we're in. And so that's really how I kind of that's maybe how I want I would really encourage people to not be despairing about, well, it's bad to be stuck in freeze or it's bad to be stuck in fight or flight. It's just kind of how your nervous system adapted. And really where we want our nervous systems to go is, to, is this idea kind of be flexible, to be moving in and out of these states, not to just avoid them because we're all going to get into them. I think this brings up, you know, there's the, there's the pandemic itself and there's the self-living at home, but then there's all the other things that are going on for people, be it concerns about elderly parents or friends or neighbors, um, other illnesses or concerns. And we were just talking about a friend of a friend who's cancer treatments, right? So all of this is now going on. So the, the question is, 
what's our definition of resiliency, holding the idea that we've got these adaptive systems. And so I, I think that um, with that idea in mind that it's not just about being an open engagement all the time, because that's just not possible. You know, my system, I know for me, kind of my, what Deb Dana kind of calls home away from home in my nervous system is fight or flight. I think that early days, and I think this is what I was also maybe just want to make a point that there, there is also, I think, some you know, data to suggest how we look acutely in the first four weeks of this is going to be different than how we look three months from now. So our system absorbing and adapting kind of to this newness of what's going on is going to look different than it does three months from now. Okay. So with all of that said, what do we do? Like, what, what do we do? And I think this is where um, what's really interesting, looking at what's getting posted around kind of, um, I hope kind of both in the resources that we were, we're trying to offer and also the dialogue we're trying to kind of be in with other groups and healers and therapists and musicians and artists and people is not verbal so much. If you're thinking, for example, if you think about how do I get out of a free state when I'm feeling really low energy and really feeling like I am alone and I'm lost in the world and I'm feeling disconnected, I'm feeling underwater, right? If we really slow down and try to figure, really find a moment, and I would encourage people who are listening to kind of just try to conjure up a moment that they've had in their own lives where they might be feeling this way, it's not words or stories or, or things. It starts to be really at like the really granular level of concrete things in terms of textures and tones and music and art. So if we think about what bypasses our nervous system to get it moving. In that sense, we want to get it upregulated. We want it to come up through the nervous system. We want to get it kind of going. We want it to move a little bit into fight or flight. We want to activate it. I would think about, um, I think about breath. There's a lot of just thinking about regulating how are you breathing and trying to just to be aware of your surroundings, getting out of numbness and dissociation. So bring your body back into the into the, into the room. So it might be breath work, meaning just breathing, trying to breathe not deeply or more slowly, but just tracking your breath along with some grounding and awareness of what is the textures of the bed that you're in? What's the temperature? Bringing yourself into bodily awareness with reality, bringing yourself back into the room, back into the moment. I think that the things that tend to bypass this again are not verbal things. Sometimes music can be a way of like matching your feeling. Can you, if you're there with your phone, can instead of watching something to tune out, can you find a song, something that can express what is the place that you are in? The tricky part of being in a free state is that you feel unreachable and you're likely the person who's not on those Zoom calls with friends. Right. So maybe you're a person who's listening to this alone and feels like, or you might, or you might be on, you might be on the Zoom calls in bed, but not with video on. That's right. I mean, I found in a lot of these these calls that I've been on, a lot of people won't be putting the videos on. Yeah. For whatever reason. Well, that might be. I think that's a really good guess. Mm. You know, I think it's like the people, like if I think about our group and like who I'm just checking with my staff and we're all moving, we're, we're all in this too. We're all moving in and out of these states. And so I think when we're checking in on each other, we're starting to get nervous about the people that we're not hearing from or the one word answers, right? And I think, um, again, this is where I think people who are in those states, 
I would want to invite them to not move into a shame state about being in freeze. It's just what your body knew. It's just what it's, what it does when it's under stress. There's absolutely, I truly believe in whatever years or wisdom I have on this planet. It's there for a good reason. And so I'd say start slow and just try to bring yourself literally bodily, physically back into the, into the world, right? With music, with, with feeling textures, things around you, with noticing things that literally bring you back into the room, back into the world that try to stay present focused. So I think that that's, I guess, like as a practical tip, it's, it's, I guess it's that. And all of these have to have like heaps of compassion for how difficult that is to do on your own. We do so much better coming back to life with another so if you are alone and you are stuck in freeze, have deep compassion for yourself and start small. And if you realize that you're on the phone with somebody who's not on the video or isn't saying much, it may sound really weird, but do a Zoom call with no video and just say, I'm here. Have a cup of coffee together. Don't demand more from that person to upregulate them. Just be with them where they are at and give them some cues in some sense. I'm still here. You know, now I'm taking a bite of toast. Can you take a bite of toast with me? Like you just start really simply. I think for, you know, so I think that there's grounding, there's getting just oriented with really present focused reality, textures, tones, things that are, aren't so verbal because we just don't have any access to that. It's a very kind of old primitive state in the brain. Yeah. Okay. This yeah. Is very good advice. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. That's, All right. That's for that's like maybe speaking to our our um our dorsal folks or like for me I kinda, uh, that state is like Ithaca for me Ithaca New York. Um, so next maybe fight or flight. You know, um, maybe for me when I think about when I had to do my kind of my polyvagal ladder and my workshop with Deb Dana, I kind of put New York City there, and New York City really I consider home, but internally is also kind of my home away from home. Even just I'm not in New York, New York City currently. Um, I think personally. Um, I'm finding a lot of mismatch with being so far outside the city in a place geographically in the South of the U S where things aren't as impactful. And there's the less of a sense of in the community, no one's able to kind of match what I'm feeling and what I'm ex- know is going on with friends and people in the room. But anyway, so that's just my little shorthand for like my New York city place inside the kind of high energy, high intensity, high electricity, fight or flight. I was even, I mean, I mean in a certain way, in many ways, creating the resource page was totally from my New York city place in my nervous system. Let's do something. And it was with this kind of good relational intention of like, let's set up something that's about giving and receiving and being at different places and something that was communal and creating dialogue. And all those things are true. Um, but I think it came from this place of like, let's act, let's act, let's act. Yeah. So I think that different from dorsal, that's really about kind of waking up gently. I think when we're talking about fight or flight, um, modes of energy. I think then again, we're not talking about verbally dominated ways to help people out. You know, there's, I think when people are really in panic states, when they're waking up in the middle of the night, we really don't have access to a lot of words and logic at that point. You know, we, um, Daniel Siegel famously kind of talks about, and it's maybe a little more helpful that we're on video, you know, if this is the brain and this is the brain stem and this is the amygdala and this is the prefrontal cortex, like we're sitting like this that when we're in fight or flight, our lid is flipped. Meaning we're like in that place, that amygdala place, dominant place that like is in our neuroception, ah, threat detection, let's mobilize, let's, let's act. So again, it might be 
in a different way, very consciously coming again back to the body and how do you downregulate yourself? So instead of kind of using maybe breath work, yoga, physical exercise, music to upregulate, now we're wanting to think about things that, that are in a very conscious way help to slow us down. I know for me, um, and it's, it's very new practice, but I think um, for me, this is kind of where I have to come back to some kind of both meditation practice, but I have to say to be candid, if I wasn't finding some way to physically move, and I've been doing it in the room that I'm working from, I think as a lot of people have been doing the working and exercising, like literally within three feet of each other. I think some of that is like getting some energy discharge. We know that that also exercise has really good effects for discharge, you know, in increasing kind of our endorphins. We know it's got really good physical um, impact for me. My, that's how my anxiety is getting regulated through some exercise and meditation, kind of the combination of the two that, that, um, and that also sometimes like having like little dance parties in my room, because again, having music that's a little bit matching where I'm at, that's attuning to where I am, that nobody, nobody's there to say, yeah, everyone's really amped up and really freaked out and scared today. But there's something about like music or dance music or something house music that like helps match a certain feeling. And there's something about that that just goes, okay, yeah, this is where my body is at. Just kind of just feeling it, acknowledging it and then thinking about ways to then move it down. So that's like, if I'm starting, if there's like the exercise or dancing or kind of listening to higher um, energy music is up here, there's something that once it's attuned to, then I can slow down. I tend to kind of, for myself, just personally, do some kind of physical movement first, and then I can meditate. And then I can use breath of just coming back to just a regular, even kind of not trying to like force it any kind of like, you know, I know that, that for some people holding breath and working with breath is also a different, a very deliberate way, like meaning counting your breath of inhaling to five, exhaling for five is another way that potentially helps to downregulate. That doesn't work for me, but I, I find that kind of, again, some kind of breath and body work is, an, is another way to, to um, downregulate your system. Yeah. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be interesting. Yeah when if people are doing this and I, I've spoken to a few quite a few friends that are doing as you say an exercise regime while they're doing it at their standing desks they've assembled in their house yes and people go back to work and they're being told what are you doing getting down the floor doing these press-ups or yeah. squats in and the middle of the office because it's parts of the what might change who knows after all of it is it could have a radical right. impact on and, right. and, and work right. and office life right and I maybe just want, I just maybe want to add. I mean, I think that that's what you're saying, Mark, is is making me think again about me trying to also think about resiliency here and thinking about it relationally, because I think as I'm talking, I'm, I'm very aware that those are kind of like the old um, kind of frames of mind of just thinking about it individually. And I think that it is important to think be thinking of those those way. But I would also say to both those states and thinking about what one might want to do. I do think this is where when I was saying, even being on the phone with no video with somebody and, and having a, a, an intention to connect is really important. And the same thing, there's something about, um, you know, there's, there's like a little, um, you know, kind of counter on the meditation app I use that shows you how many people are meditating with you. And I think there is something about leaning into the community experience or even just when people are cueing me into remember, um, 
There's so many other people at home right now doing this too, because I think that that's the thing that starts to tap into that open, engaged part of me to think about the larger world, to think about the larger community of people and what we're all trying to go through, which is in a sense, I don't know if we, you know, um, being confronted with our mortality in one way or the other. What's your meditation app? Um, I think it's just called like meditation timer. I'll have to find it for you. So you can maybe oh, find it. It. oh, wait a minute. It's an insight timer. Insight timer. Yes. Instant timer. Yeah. I know the one you mean. Yeah. yeah it's lovely. It's very, yeah. very simple. But yeah. and you're not on with a lot of other people, but you get, you can see at the end, oh, I was meditating with X number of people today. Uh, and I try to hold that in mind. And I also try to hold it in mind um, as a little baby Buddhist, burgeoning kind of new Buddhist. I'm trying to go to the classes from my meditation center online. And the instructor is always saying, remember, there's so many of you at home right now watching this too. You're here, like having this experience with me, just one on one with the screen. But there's so many other people having this experience too. Um, and then, why is that important? Again, if we think about how it might prime us both to what are the places where we feel more connected, what are the places where we feel our community, because what we know, what we're starting to kind of see. Um, as it relates to resiliency kind of research is that their community cohesion is something that is protective potentially in um, even in things that even in situations like 9-11 and situations like the kind of the double triple whammies depending on which stressors you're trying to identify the financial crisis back in 08 and then Hurricane Sandy when you're kind of looking at um, this goes back to George Bonanno's lab and his work when you're looking at what defines resiliency? What def and they, they would also define it as like some flexibility, being able to express and be able to move in and out of these states, right? Versus like emotional rigidity would be getting kind of stuck in these states. Some of it is community cohesion. I mean, I think some of the things that we've been talking about in our friend chats have been these very powerful moments where we've been feeling so moved by how people have been showing up for each other. And what does that do to signal to people that you're here? There's other people here that even if you're alone in your apartment, other people are looking out for you. It kind of challenges a certain assumption of like that I'm alone in the world. Um, and there could be very good reasons why certain people feel that more than others. But um, I think this is a time to be thinking of, you know, getting away from the idea of like the rugged individual. And it's just going to be about how we pick ourselves up by the bootstraps. I don't think that was ever true. I think that that's a way to protect ourselves against how vulnerable we really are in the world. So I think leaning into the idea of community and how many people are going through this too and are going through similar things or moving in and out of these states in our nervous system um, that are, are struggling. I think like that's kind of part of acknowledging our own vulnerability and connecting with the kindness and thoughtfulness of others, I think is important. Okay. Yeah. So that was the second stage. Yeah. What about the, the third stage? The open and engaged stage. I mean, I think this is kind of where um, if you kind of find yourself with kind of in that kind of ventral vagal state, right? Huh? Feeling open and, and engaged. I mean, I think this is really where, how can we expand it? I think kind of once you're there, um, 
I, I know that there's people who are really trying to through this different stress, but they're finding themselves in, in a place of calm and they want to intensify it and they're feeling like they're able to access their emotions. Because again, that state is like feeling safe to feel your feelings. Mm-hmm. So this is, I think, where people are doing art. I know that there's friends of mine who have gone on to do other things in their life, but are going back to drawing and singing and songwriting or journaling or just being with a friend and instead of kind of giving the nice answer about like, oh, this is what I'm doing with my time or these are the languages I'm learning, just having a good cry or a good, there's a good kind of rage or venting session. I mean, I think there's a lot of beautiful things going on, but I think this time is also laying bare the inequities in our world. And so I think um, being in that open engaged state is just means how can I expand it? How can I be there and also, again, have a lot of tenderness to know I'm going to be moving back in and out of those other states too. And that my resiliency is not the avoidance of those feelings or avoidance of those states. It's just riding the waves back up to kind of open engagement where I can in that place, feel my feelings. And if I'm really lucky, make sense of how I'm feeling with another person. It could be joy and excitement about creativity and again it could be these other states too but it's kind of that's really where we want to stay we want to expand we want to think about how do we that is a state where our lids are on our heart is open we feel kind of most like ourselves and we can really be who we are we can kind of stand in the 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 light and know i can say anything to this zoom chat group that i'm on like i'm having a really hard day you know i was on a call last night with some friends um, I don't have children myself, but I have children and, and a, you know, a couple of them were just saying, I, I'm, ha- I'm really struggling. I'm not having this grand time of like finding myself and I'm not meditating. I'm not, I'm just trying to get the day. I'm just trying to get the laundry. I'm just trying to get through the readjusting to dealing with the stress of worrying about my business and my livelihood and trying to take care of my kids and deal with the homeschooling and, and everything else like that. But that is, that might sound like, a frozen place or a fight or flight place, but it's really coming from an open engaged place because it's feeling safe to just be who you are. Say how you feel, feel how you feel and make sense of it. To feel, as Diana Fosha says, to be able to feel and deal. To stay with this, stay with another. Feel, feel and deal. deal. Feel okay. and deal, right? Feel and deal comes from open and engaged. So it's not like just open and engaged isn't just about like happiness and ecstasy, although it could be. It's about having that feeling, having access to it truly because sometimes real joy is very vulnerable. Like if you're in a place where this is a time where it's giving you a break and you're really realizing some things about yourself that are really, that you're grieving for a former self, you're excited about something new, you're making some transitions, but to really share that with someone else still takes safety and takes internal safety in your nervous system. But so if I think if you're there, it's just giving yourself permission to stay there to deepen it, to expand it, stay with that person, take the chance, say a little more, make sense of it, feel it, go through it. That's what I would say. Feel and deal. Yeah. So given your, uh, your experience of having seen this and, and been here in 9-11, yeah. and you said that it was very much the people in the building and around it in close proximity, what's your, what's your sense of when we talk about the new normal and the return to normalcy, I mean, what, what's, what do you feel is going to happen right. three months, six months down the line? Right. I mean, I think um, 
where this is really different, and I think what probably goes, goes on a broken record about this is that in a way, the trauma or the stressor for those of us who are not on the front lines, and I want to be really clear, I'm not a frontline worker. So I'm not a medical professional in a hospital. I'm not a grocery store clerk. I'm not a delivery person and all of the incredible other people who are on the front line who I would consider to be maybe comparable to those high exposure folks that were in the World Trade Center, right? Um, is that the, the stressor for those of us who are not in those frontline positions, who are not actually witnessing death or being put repetitively in situations of exposure to the illness is uncertainty, right? So none of us know exactly when this is gonna be over. There's some modeling about it. There's some thinking about it. There's some kind of evidence maybe from other cities, but there's then evidence to not trust it. So I think like, there, there's a little bit of a difference in the sense of the uncertainty of the time frame that we're working in. That said, I think that's going to be very unique. I think that's the that's the challenge that this um, this kind of situation is calling to all of our nervous systems. And some people, again, because of their experiences in the world, have a lot more experience with uncertainty, have a lot more experience with the inequities of the government, <laughs> have a lot more experiences with ways that um, of not being taken care of in the medical system and um, different forms of oppression. Right. So. Even with that said, my sense would be what we're going to see a year out is um, certainly with some of these these things as you're saying, substance use, um, you know, uh, being elevated, <clears throat> symptoms of depression and anxiety elevated. But I don't think we're going to see that a year out because we're built to adapt. Mm -hmm. I do think that there will be people who are going to have more of a struggle and the question is who is that going to be and why and i think that that's a big question to answer my sense would be that looking at kind of data from other kind of post-traumatic growth or kind of resiliency projects really it, it it does relate around how did you come into this experience in terms of what's your prior history with depression and anxiety you know, kind of what's your internal propensity. And I would say like from this model to really get stuck and freeze, to get stuck again with that kind of rigidity in your system around fight or flight, my guess would be those folks are going to have a harder time. I think that, um, you know, that there's, sorry, go ahead. No, I, one of the things that I've been wondering about is just the, um, I mean, depending on how if you can get your hand on any sort of Clorox or um, or yeah. sanitizer, the 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 behaviours that we are being encouraged to adopt are bordering on OCD, yes. and I just wonder if that will linger and if that how people will overcome that and go back onto subways or the metro or the yeah. underground in London to stand to go into cinemas, be sitting next to each other, to be in. Um, opera um, or theatres yes. where you're crammed and on gigs I mean for six weeks ago I was with my friend Graham at a gig yeah. here in Williamsburg yeah. packed in yeah. everyone like and you just can't imagine yeah. how people are going to embrace those old behaviours after being told distancing right. um, it's just, you just don't suddenly drop it like that and go back to normal I don't think I mean but I, I mean I'd love your perspective on the psychological yeah. state. I mean, I think again, this is where um, I, I don't. I don't feel Pollyanna-ish 
I, um, so I don't want to minimize the concern, but I, I think I say that I think we will adapt because again, I really, I really believe in my core. It's what we've been wired to do. If you look at any, um, system of atrocity, again, it, it doesn't, you look at, um, you know, the Holocaust, you look at, um, acts of well, Rwanda, 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 Rwanda genocide, yeah. genocide. Yeah. how did they adapt? How did they yeah. go back? You know, this is like really, it's not that it's, it is, um, there are so many places of, uh, of terror and fear and people putting their lives on the line that have to do the frontline workers. And I think, and, and for internal terror and fear, because again, we're all longing for connection right now. It's a stressful time. So we're all longing for our people, whether real or kind of our internalized versions of those people to comfort us and to soothe us. So I believe we're going to adapt. And I think there's going to be the people that it's harder for are, are folks that we've really got to take a really good look at because it speaks to um, who we haven't been taking good care of all along. Right. Mm -hmm. I think um, what, so I think what will, what will kind of these kind of, what will happen with these OCD behaviors? If it's any evidence, I have a, I have a friend um, Kate McKnight, whose specialty is working with OCD. And I asked her, how are your clients doing? And she said, great. Loving it. I think in some ways it matches a little bit like their inside now matches their outside, but she was saying yeah. it from a place of they know what to do because so much of OCD as kind of the psychological description of that phenomenon is an anxiety disorder that deals with uncertainty. They're just behaviors to deal with uncertainty. And so I'd come back again to think like at the heart of this really, if we're thinking about what is resiliency, what makes us resilient, it's gonna be maybe what to do in those states to kind of help our systems, nervous systems get more flexible to move more and more in those states of open engagement to feel and deal and be connected, right? That's kind of my definition. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, uh, I actually just, I, I just lost my train of thought, but um, I think, Anyway, I'll, oh, I'll, oh, OCD, yeah. OCD, yeah. But they're they're doing yeah. okay because they they know they know kind of what to they know what to do, um, and they've how oh, sorry this was my this was my thought um, that they've had to deal with uncertainty, and a lot of the treatment for for OCD is about exposure to the things that are terrifying and fearful. There's, there could be potentially coming out of this if we're having to deal with the uncertainty of who's going to make me sick, how long is this going to last, that our tolerance for uncertainty grows during this time, potentially. How does it grow? I think you have to be in that kind of more open, engaged, you know, ventral vagal place to be able to confront, I think, again, like, this is just, again, my personal bias. I think what different religions and faiths, and certainly the Buddhists do, confront death and uncertainty. Mm. We're all going to die. That's the, you know, when and how is the biggest uncertainties and mysteries of life. But really, there's echoes of this, and I think there's echoes of it in, you know, there's a body of thinking called terror management theory in psychology. And so a lot of, um, there was, I was reading some articles looking at essentially terror management theory is the idea that so much of our anxiety and our behaviors in life are all around our unconscious management of the human capacity to know we are going to die. And that it rules our decision-making, not in our conscious thinking, like who am I going to vote for? What am I going to do? Am I going to eat healthy? That's like a conscious thought, like, oh, I'm going to eat healthy, so I'm going to live longer. 
Being conscious part is knowing we have no control. We're just the same as the animals and the plant life. And we're all part of the circle of life. It's completely overwhelming and horrifying to sit with that. But I think that, that there's something about whether it's OCD is a very specific kind of psychological phenomena or just being human. There's something about engaging with that uncertainty, mortality being the biggest one of them that I think building up our capacity to engage with it in a healthy way, in a productive way, might lead to less need to do um, big shares of power or acts of violence. I think if we're really understanding we're all going to die, it changes maybe bigger, you know, kind of uh, power grabs for we take these resources or we keep these people oppressed. So, I mean, that's my very, like, idealistic, maybe it's a little intellectual, but it's also my, my, my hope for myself is trying to stay in this experience and not be above it. And also kind of watching for um, myself as a helper and watching the helpers around us again, with that instinct to want to help to be above the worry versus in it and in it with our clients in it with friends in it with people listening to this podcast that we're, we're all in it. And if we're all in it really, and no amount of toilet paper, or, um, you know, Grey Goose vodka from the liquor store, or, you know, if you're out in California or Colorado or some of the other amazing places in the world where weed is legal, you know, marijuana, there's no amount of that that's going to get us out of that universal truth. And so then how do we start to deal with each other and really take care of each other if we're not just crazy fighting over all of these resources? You know, that's what I'm wondering these days. Great. Um, way to wrap up and yeah. uh, leave people to reflect. But I think Elaine wants to have a ask, yeah. or Bettina, you might as well. So I'm going to go on mute because Elaine's in the same room. So just okay. uh, bear with me a second. Sure. Well, I find really interesting the part of the safer environment. And I think this is a time where you start to see in some of your friends and communities which are the ones that make you feel safer and which ones are not. Yeah. Um, I think after this, there will be a moment where we will start like building safer communities. Yeah. Uh, what would your take be on that? Yeah, I think it's really true because I think, um, again, just going back to, I think that there's so much discussion about the body amongst maybe people in the mental health community and just thinking about what are resources, what are tactics. And there's, and also just giving great credit to, um, you know, both Deb Dina and Stephen Porges and um, the sensory motor and somatic experiencing folks that have all along been kind of letting the body and the nervous system lead. And I think because we're so much more aware than we might be on kind of a regular day of how does this person, how does this situation make me feel? Because I feel like my resources are more limited now. My bandwidth is, is less. So I can't tolerate that friend or that relative that minimizes my experience, that um, can't tolerate being with me when I'm in a dorsal state, when I'm in a fight or flight state, when I'm in a Ithaca or New York City state, or my open and engaged might be like, I don't know, some of the, the incredible beaches like in Bali or places I've been to that are just kind of magical, right? Like that if they can't be with me in those darker places, they, they can only be with me when I'm at kind of my, my best. And then it's, I don't, I don't have time for it because it actually detracts or it actually starts to almost feel painful or infuriating. 
So I think that this is maybe a moment that maybe people are doing a little bit of culling of both what are activities and situations and roles and jobs that I no longer, I just realized I don't have the time and bandwidth for, um, but certainly people too. Who really makes me feel like I can just say and be who, who I am in whatever moment that I am that doesn't, that, that I think that those, are, those people are really um, so, so precious and rare. And, you know, as I was, as I think, you know, keep alluding to Elaine, you're a huge part of that. You're, you're certainly part of my system that makes me feel <laughs> safe and engaged and open and that I can be having a good day or bad day or, um, you know, and I know that you'll just be with me however I am. So I think that like, I really think it's important. I think that that's maybe part of, again, along the, the edges of this experience, I think that there's a lot happening in people's relationships in their marriages and partnerships too. You know, I think there's a lot being written about, okay, now I'm home with my spouse 24 seven. I'm my partner. I'm, I'm working, working out, working. I mean, if, again, if we're fortunate to be working or dealing with this, the financial stressors, which is a whole other thing that I want to add into this mix about resiliency, um, you know, that are and stressors that is going on for so many people. I feel like that there's a health issue and then there's just economic devastation that's going on throughout the world. Right. Um, but people who can be with me and my worries and my concerns, and I think are incredibly valuable people. I'm very lucky that we're one of those people in my life. Yeah. Thank you. Me too. Definitely. I think there is a huge opportunity for also the work environment to build the safer places yeah. in the longer term. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think so. And I think this is maybe, you know, it's a call to action. I think that certainly many large companies have been trying to figure out what does health and wellness mean? And certainly understandably, like, what does it mean for the bottom line? But I think at a time like this, what they're really realizing is that it's even bigger maybe than the bottom line, we hope. Not all companies, but I think, um, you know, I know Mark um, and you all on the Possible Network had Lorna Davis on, who I find to be an incredibly wise um, and resourceful person who's involved with the B Corp movement and was when she was at Danone. Um, and the B Corp, which I didn't know about prior to meeting Lorna, is an organization that helps industries organize for the greater good. And I think, um, again, where those companies and where those CEOs, what is the kind of, where do they need to be in their nervous system, I think, to begin to think in those ways that it's not about this competition for resources. That's kind of from this older way of like, resources are scarce and we're all, you know, we got to get it while we can. And we got to compete to win to, we're all going to win if our employees are healthy, they have a place in the world, that there's a sense where they can feel supported here in our community and that we together can take on these bigger issues, whether you're a food manufacturer or you make shoes or clothing or um, are in IT or tech, that they might seem not disconnected from the community. But I think what we're all experiencing, if we can really let ourselves be with it, is just how, how connected we are and also, yeah, how connected we are. I mean, I think just for the, the purposes of what you're saying. So I, my, my hope would be, um, I know it's the intention of our resource page for our group that it's a conversation. I mean, first and foremost, it was a way for our group to have more connections with each other. It's both my kind of fight or flight, New York City nervous system project. But then it's also for our, our group to have some a common project to be working on. And also so that 
I have another friend, um, a really lovely, one of my other kind of my, my other safe open engage person is my really dear friend, Elena, who runs marketing group out of Athens in London. And so she's helping us with our social media. So it's this way to be connected and it's a way for us to engage in conversations and look at, look at all these other healers and therapists and look at what they're doing and let's see if we can kind of share resources with each other. Cause it's not about like, who's going to get the most clients, but it's really how do we have this conversation and learn from each other and be with each other and support each other because helping all of those other entities out is a, is a win for everybody, right? It's kind of changing that mindset. So my sincere hope would be that there's, there's a way that more CEOs can get in that frame of mind and um, certainly ones that have larger company footprints than are my beloved Renekin Associates group. And if people want to read your resources, uh, check it out, where do they find it? They can go to renekeassociates.com and some very brilliant uh, web designers have created a way for uh, you to just redirect directly to the, the COVID-19 resource page. And I think the way that that is set up is both in receiving nourishment, giving nourishment, receiving wisdom, and giving wisdom with the idea, again, that we're all in this and we might be at different arcs of the wave of kind of our nervous systems. And there's days when we might we just need our nervous systems fed. We need support. So we're really trying to focus on the online groups that we're trying to do and other, um, other kind of colleagues have recommended other people who are kind of doing online community support groups. Giving nourishment is really kind of when you're in a place where you're feeling more resourced that day and have a bit to give back. To the group and the same for wisdom about learning and about giving giving learning um so that's kind of the way that the pages is, is set up but yeah you can find it at renikeyassociates.com okay um and if people wanted to follow you oh bettina's got a question yeah. hold, on. Yeah. hold on a second okay so um you work a lot with children and yes. um so my question is more catered to the, the children in situations like this. Um, especially, I mean, I know the smaller children might be a little bit more oblivious of what's really going on. Um, some parents might uh, protect them and not tell them what's going on because they are fearful that they might have traumas over the inf too much information. Some other parents share everything because they feel like sharing, oversharing, and letting them know exactly what's going on is a better way. So um, what do you think, for, it's a two-part question. First is like, what would your advice be to uh, the listeners of how to deal with uh, its own children? Like what is, what is right to let them know without them creating anxiety at a very early, uh, very young age um, and therefore, you know, uh, consequential traumas. Yeah. And uh, the second part is like, what um, what if there are children that um, ha are prone to anxiety already at that young age and find out what's going on, mm -hmm. develop even more or further further stress uh, stress syndrome? What would be your advice be to parents um, on how to best deal in this situation? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, and I know a lot of people are thinking about parents and families these days. And I think maybe and and Bettina just help me out if I'm not 
answering all the pieces. But I think maybe just again to kind of level set, I think the way that we work with children is again, is not as individuals. We always think about them in context of their family. And so I think that the way that I think about it first in terms of um, before I even think about information is I think about where is that parent in terms of where are they in their nervous system? So we always talk a lot about, you know, a parent's putting their oxygen masks on first. So before we even get to content, we really got to get to the process of our parents in a place where they're feeling supported enough that they have their lids on enough to have a conversation with a child. I think what we really feel is that when parents are resourced, um, and again, not just because of the the pandemic, but I think economic stress the stress around feeding families, the stress and uncertainty about um, unemployment or for folks that are in gig economy or independent contractors, when that stuff is coming back. I mean, we're talking about parents under enormous, enormous stress or even just trying to work out how to work at home if they're fortunate to have a job um, and also be dealing with all the extra demands of homeschooling, right? So there's a lot of reasons, and again, with a lot of grace and compassion for parents to have for themselves, why you might be, again, in fight or flight, in freeze. Help yourself kind of come back as best you can. Who are the safe people in your life? The other adults you can talk with on the phone, you can Zoom with if if you can do that, to get resource. Because from that place, what we really believe is that we want parents to be honest with their kids. We want them to give it developmentally, you know, kind of appropriately. But our big thing is that children always know, just like we, because they're people. Mm-hmm. So they know when stuff is going on. They know when things are unusual. So naming it together and being able to name, this is what I'm worried about. This is what I'm hopeful for. This is what I'm frustrated about. And we haven't actually yet talked about grief, but I think grief is such a big part of, I know what people are experiencing not just grief for people who are passing during this time, which is I think a whole other, maybe very specialized and maybe important conversation to be having because rituals of grief um, in families are being completely upended and interrupted. Um, But we really feel parents can say anything to their kids from a regulated space because the whole part of connection and empathy and regulation of emotion is attunement and empathy. So if a kid's experience can be named, there's if they're feeling a lot of tension in the house, if a parent can be in a regulated space and say, it's pretty nuts around here, huh? Everything is upside down. All of our routines are upside down or you know whatever it might be. Or um, it's you're really sad and you're experiencing a lot of grief because I know for a lot of our high school students or college students, they're not gonna have their graduation. They're not gonna have their proms and rites of passages all of that's being interrupted, right? So to name that and to be able to be with their kids and talk about the fears, I think that there's something, we don't know everything. I think that I know parents all over the world are feeling fairly relieved that we do know enough that this is not impacting kids as much. So I think that that's a true, that seems like as best we know that's true enough. And yet they're a whole part of carriers of why they can't see grandma, grandpa, aunts and uncles, other parts of their extended and found families is because even though the kids themselves might not get sick, it's also a lesson in teaching kids about community. And again, going back to the sense of community resiliency and that they can have a sense of pride about taking part in um, helping to protect a more vulnerable member of their group of friends or family or neighbors, right? So I think regulated parent, parent who's got their oxygen mask on, can say just about anything to their kids 
and be with them and be ready to deal with the, the feelings that are coming up. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, and we really suggest that to be, to be candid with kids as best and in developmentally appropriate way. I know that even, um, I have a nephew who's two and he's just beginning to be really verbal. And so he's often asking, like, you know, he wants to go to the park. He wants to see a friend. He doesn't understand why not. Now he's two. He's not, I mean, he's pretty oblivious, but they just say it's because of the bug. There's a bug, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? So that's like on the very, like the, the, the younger end, but I think being, being candid and being emotionally available to process whatever's coming up, um, boredom, frustration, anger, whatever it is, fear is, imp- is important. And I think if there's financial stuff going on for you as a family, again, this is where to be developmentally appropriate, but just hide it from your kids because I, we really feel again, where name it in a developmentally appropriate way that yes, we lost our job and this is what we're hoping for. And that just is just going to mean we've got to make a couple different decisions about we're going to make extra coupons or we have to kind of be careful about what we're buying at the grocery store and you can be helpful in the family. And this is how it's my job to look for jobs. And it's my job to get, you know, funding from the government or through a different relief that's starting to come through. And your job is just to, to help me try to understand, help the family understand that this is the, some of the things that are going to have to be different and that it's scary. And to be with those, be with those feelings as they emerge. So I don't know if that answers those different parts. Of yeah, it. no, it definitely, it definitely does. My, my, the part two of my question, I'm not sure if we have time to get into this, was really what about the flip side? If you don't have a family that is understanding and has the oxygen mask on, yep. members, and you are part of a, as a child in a family where there's a lot of stress, a lot of uncertainty, mm-hmm. and a lot of worry and a lot of anger as a consequence, and with anger comes abuse, Yep. And like, what do you do? Like, what, how do, how do you protect, how does uh, the government or social services or how does the school protect these children? And, and because now they don't go to school. So how, where are they getting their, their safety net from? Thank you for naming this. Um, you know, we, we know, I mean, here's the reality. We, we know that there are hotlines up not only for child abuse, but also domestic violence. We know is going to be yeah. rising during this time. We have a lot of stressed out people in close quarters I think every single child therapist that I'm speaking to is very, very scared to terrified about what's happening in many, many homes across the world right now. Um, I wish I had an easy answer to it, and I don't. I know that there are very dedicated people on hotlines that are still taking calls. Um, as, as At least when we put them up, the ones that are on our site under the kind of the protection um, part of our resource page are there both for child abuse and for domestic violence. Um, there's, there's also a, a, a special domestic violence number there for um, folks that are in the LGBTQ community. Um, so we're scared about it. And I think that like everything else, folks on those hotlines are doing the best they can. And I have to be certain that all of those services of, product, of protection are being interrupted because a lot of what those child protective services, they may be able to take the call. I am not entirely sure. It's something that I um, want to continue to check in with. I don't know what's happening in terms of in-home visits for safety. Mm. All of those calls have to be followed up on. Um, I know in cases of, for, for child abuse and also for domestic violence, this kind of, you know, home is not always what is safest. I mean, I think this is another maybe, um, point off of we're talking about friendships and people who you're calling interacting with um, online or over phones or socially distancing out in the world and seeing 
but home is not a safe place for many, many, many millions of people. So I think that this is, again, it comes back to we're in this moment now. How do we stay with both the experience that we're having, knowing that many members of our community are having these experiences and worse, and not forget about them? You know, how do we start to build up the resources for these, these folks that when we start to come back out of self-limited home, um, that there's going to be places of safety for them? Uh, you know, I wish there was something I could say to, to say, but it's something I'm really, really scared about. So I'm, I'm not sure what to do about that one because I think everybody in, in protective service is doing the best they can right now. And I, um, and I don't know what we can do. No. Yeah, but I think it's really important to think about. Um, and I think it, it goes back again to this feeling that we're all having to do relate to our lives differently because of the pandemic. But I think when people say like, we're all in this together, I think why some people bristle is because we're not all in the same place together. Um, so it's like, what's the, what's the point of resiliency we're speaking of? Is it like my resiliency? What does that even mean? I'm able to be in a room. That's an, I don't have other family members staying in this room. I'm able to work, you know, so I'm, my nervous system is still being impacted. I'm not going to short change that, but it's starting from a different place. And I think a lot of other people's resiliency has to start from in terms of also just the systemic barriers and historical barriers to access to care and other things. So I think it's like who's resiliency and what are the, the, the solutions? Cause I think that there's a lot of places where we can get politically active here and where therapists and mental health folks might need to get a lot more active and thinking about, um, we know, for example, even with um, this doesn't necessarily speak to maybe child abuse and protection, Bettina, but I think that, um, you know, a lot of, uh, mental health folks started to volunteer low cost of free services. I know myself included, I did that. Why in the middle of all of this, did we start to do that for frontline people? It's because intuitively we know there's not enough resources in the system. Mm-hmm. Medically, we know there's not enough resources in the system. I mean, this is a time to maybe like to start to like get campaigns together to do, to, you know, to think about advocacy at our um, professional association level at political levels Um, You know, I know that there's movements also, again, to think about what does resiliency mean for the folks that are incarcerated right now? Can it mean that also can we, for folks that are not incarcerated, advocate for their safe care and treatment or for their release for, you know, for nonviolent offenders or for the the different kind of um, advocate? advocate. They have. have. Yeah, Yeah, they have released uh, uh, non-violent offenders. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think it's a time to just time to kind of like stay curious about these things and think about resiliency for who and can we help continue to kind of um, create more resources in the system so more people can get into this place of open engagement to thrive or have more experiences where they're yeah allowed to kind of reach their potential so okay well Courtney I think it's it's been about an hour and 10 minutes so I, I think we should maybe wrap it up there but sure. thank you so much for your time i think i don't think we're going to do much editing here i think we're just going to um yeah. Yeah. probably put a little intro and outro on it and then just post it so um we'll share the link with you um it will yeah, be on youtube guys. fairly soon and it'll be an audio on the podcast yeah thank you so really thank you very much like, yeah thank um, you guys too because i feel like this gives some meaning to it was nice to have some again like 
output for, I mean, this does, I guess maybe just, I just feel appreciative that this provides me some outlet for meaning in my life. So I really appreciate you reaching back out and it's really nice to see, you know, in the zoom way, I don't know how you're editing it, but I get to see all of your faces. <laughs> it feels very, again, you know, not individually centered. It feels very like a communal effort. And so I can't wait till we're all in the same room together again, but thank you guys so much for taking time on yeah. Easter Sunday to listen to me blather Thank on. You.